This morning, I wanted to tell you that I have never been a fighter. Not really. I am more of a wriggler than a wrestler. Really? And in my university days in the dorms, we would have these wrestling times where all the guys would get together and wrestle. Like, it's a weird guy thing, I guess. I don't know. So, like, it wasn't totally my thing, but I guess I felt compelled by the rest of the dorm pushing me into the center to wrestle. And so we'd do this, and, you know, like, I, I'm not strong. I'm like, a, I'm a wriggler. I'm good at wriggling. And there was one guy who was kind of the king of the wrestling um, totem pole and his name was Nathan and he was about six foot three and he was just built like he was all muscle and it wasn't like like working out in the gym kind of muscle it was he was a farmer from the uh the plains of Canada Saskatchewan or Manitoba or somewhere in there and he was like a a hay baling you know like just strong and so I think I surprised him a little bit when he couldn't pin me down. I, I kept wriggling out, and then he'd try to get me again. And I lasted for a little while. But you know what the thing in wrestling or in fighting, the, the truth is that um, the one who is stronger in the end is going to win. And now the thing isn't, is the one who is stronger isn't always the one who looks stronger. But that was the case in this situation. Nathan did win. He did wear me out. And finally pinned me down, and I was exhausted. And he was not. He still had lots of energy. In today's passage, Jesus is going to demonstrate, and he's going to declare that he is the one who is stronger. He's the one who's stronger. Uh, our sermon series is, takes us through the book of Luke, and we're oh, we're not quite halfway, but we're getting on to halfway, and you know, so like, let's be encouraged, right? We're, we're making it, slowly but surely with our breaks, but um, you know, this, the story we keep hearing over and over and over in lots of these stories that Dr. Luke is telling as he gives the account of the life of Jesus, is that the good news of the kingdom is being made available for everyone. Everyone is being welcomed into the good news of the kingdom of Jesus, rich and poor Young and old, male and female, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, outcast and elite. And Jesus is drawing crowds of people as he proclaims this news, as he heals people. He's drawing crowds and he's also drawing criticism. Because not everyone is cool with the message that this is free for everyone. Everyone's welcomed in. And the religious elite don't like it. There's a backlash. There's a battle that happens between them. And they don't like Jesus or his message. And so they, they can't attack Jesus because he's so popular. He's got all the crowds. You know, everyone's around him. Everyone loves him. But, but so they can't attack him. But they're going to go at it different ways. And some of the ways they do it is they sow doubt about who Jesus is. And they provoke him. And they try to bait him to get him to say something that's wrong or to break a rule. They can't arrest him, but they question him constantly. And they, they slander him. They say things about him that aren't true. And they attempt to catch him all the time in these irregularities or even in blasphemy. They're looking for like the minute detail that they could catch him on. And that's part of the story today. Let's read it together. It's Luke chapter 11, uh, verses 14 to 28. If you have your Bible, you can uh, read along with us. 
Now, he was casting, so Jesus, he was casting out a demon that was mute. And when the demon had gone, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided house falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. (laughs) And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divided his, divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When an unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the state of that person is worse than the first. This is God's word. (gasps) Whoa. We went from the Good Samaritan to Mary and Martha to Jesus teaching about how to pray to Beelzebub and demons. This is our text, and we get to invest in it. We get to, it I'm excited about it because I spent all week <laughs> praying. Lord, what are you saying today? My big idea is this. Although we experience spiritual opposition, Jesus has won because he is stronger. If you can't remember that, you could remember this. Jesus is stronger. That's the main idea. And actually, if you had trouble remembering that idea, I I love for that to sink home and go into our hearts that over the course of our life, whatever circumstance we face, whatever situation we're in, that we would remember and learn that one thing, that Jesus is stronger. And if that would sink home in our hearts, if we would know that in our hearts, in all of the situations we face in our life, I think our lives would be different. They'd be transformed. Jesus is at war. Many years ago... um, Lauren was, I'm going to tell a Lauren story, and she's here, which is always a bit scary because I have to get the details right. Many years ago, Lauren was invited to a birthday party of a friend, and this friend enjoyed having, like, sensational, really fun parties. So she's always doing crazy stuff for her parties, and it was always really awesome and exciting. And then this one year, she decided she was going to have a fortune teller come to her birthday party. This was going to be the sensational and fun thing she was going to do. So as soon as Lauren heard this, we started praying and we were wrestling like, oh, what are we going to do? Like, you know, you can't, you can't go. You can't go to fortune teller at a party. And so we were praying and we said, okay, well, let's pray. Let's really bring this before the Lord and find out. Because we also don't want to 
ostracize the friend, but like, this is pretty clear. And so as we prayed and Lauren, she got different, shared with different people, got some counsel and really got a sense from the Lord what she was supposed to do. She decided she was going to go to the party. And so she went to the party, she sat down, and the fortune teller was going in the next room, and people were going to go into the other room and get their fortunes told. And so as soon as it started, all of a bunch of her friends all turned to her and said, what are you going to do? And Lauren said, well, I'm not going to go in there because I don't know what the source of her power is. And I'm not going to put myself under the, the power of another person when I don't know what the source of her power is. So if she declared that and I was, I'm okay, then that would be different. But I'm not going to put myself under that message or that authority. And a bunch of her friends sitting there said, yeah, us too, us too. We'll sit with you. And they stayed. And they sat together and they didn't go in. What is the source of Jesus' power? That's the attack that's coming. That's what they're attacking, is the source of Jesus' power. Jesus casts out a demon and the, from the mute person, and the person speaks. So clearly, we're, no one is going to say that every mute person, that's a demonic situation, or physical ailments are always a demonic situation. So sometimes, as in this case, the demon manifested itself in that way. It kept the person from speaking. And so when the demon left, the person could speak again. This was a miracle. People marveled at this situation. As this happened and the guy starts talking, everyone is in awe. And Jesus is doing what he's always been doing. He's doing what he said his mission was, which was Luke chapter 4, verse 18 to 19. Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But remember, the, the uncomfortable religious leaders don't like Jesus or his message, and they're looking for ways to get at Jesus. So they do things like Matthew chapter 11. They say things like, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So because Jesus, he went to people's houses, and he ate and drank, and they had feasts and parties, and he was a fun guy to be around, and they celebrated around him, they said, oh, look, Jesus is a glutton and a drunkard. So they, they labeled him this. And in this situation, some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven, like a different sign than healing people and casting out demons and all these things. Something more, I guess. And like today's historians and scholars, no one is questioning that Jesus is a real guy standing there. They're not questioning that he did amazing things or that he has a big impact. And that's a struggle we have today. People say, well, Jesus, I don't believe Jesus was a, you know, I think he's just kind of a fairy tale. And reputable scholars everywhere will agree that Jesus was a real guy who walked the real earth he lived around the first century Roman Empire in the area of Palestine. There's more evidence for the life of Jesus than there is for the life of Julius Caesar. We don't have any problem agreeing Julius Caesar was a real guy. And they don't dispute that Jesus was a worker of amazing things, that he, did, he had wisdom 
and he did miracles. So the question here in this text, and also the question we have and historians have to deal with, is how? How did he do this? Who is he really? Is he a son of God, as he claims, the son of God? Or is he a son of the devil? That's the question they're wrestling with and they're asking. And that's the, the doubt they're trying to sow. They're trying to say the demons obeyed Jesus because Jesus is on their team. That's why, they, that's why he's evil. That's why they're obeying him. And that's what they're trying to say. Now, if you aren't a Christian or you haven't been a Christian for very long, then any kind of mention of demons feels uncomfortable. <laughs> I'm sure. It's uncomfortable. It's not a thing we're used to talking about or addressing. In North America, we tend to view the spiritual world with a scientific skepticism. Like, okay, well, maybe, you know, and demons and Satan, that's all like, you know, little horns and red creatures with little four tails, you know, and they're in the cartoons or Africa maybe or somewhere. And, you know, or maybe they sit on our shoulder and tell us to do bad things or good things, you know, with an angel and a devil you know like we, that's the picture we have of demons but the bible picture is different the bible tells us that demons are fallen angels so just like we have angels who minister for god there's fallen angels and satan is a fallen angel and he has other fallen angels and they're on the same mission and the mission they have is to steal and kill and destroy to separate to keep us separated from god to destroy our relationship with god to keep us from knowing who we are in Christ. And they're far more subtle than horns and tails and little red beings. And it's evidenced, if you look around, in our worship and pursuit of knowledge, material possessions, workaholism, atheism, the trail of apathy for God, addiction in food, alcoholism, pornography, drugs, sexual promiscuity, and the wreckage of our relationships. So many of us have the wreckage behind us of all these relationships we've smashed up. Marriage, family, all sorts of things. If you looked around and really were honest, we'd say, North America is a mess. Ephesians 6 verse 12 says this, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's the battle. Now, Jesus responds, his, his rebuttal to them is twofold. He says two things. The first one is, he says, evil can't cast out evil. Evil can't cast out evil. It doesn't work. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided house falls. And if Satan is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Just like in a house that has division, it can't last forever. It will fall apart. Or a a country that is divided. Can a country that is divided at civil war fight off another enemy? No. They're in civil war. They're fighting each other. It cannot last. A kingdom like that cannot last. It doesn't work. And secondly, Jesus says that everyone has a power source. There is a power source. And they're saying, so the people, detractors of Jesus are saying, Jesus must be using evil power because that's the power source. That's, the, that's how it works. And Jesus questions them. He puts their question back to them. He says, 
If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, the power of evil, by whom do your sons cast them out? If you're using the power of God, then what about me? And then he says, your sons, they will be your judges. Their hypocrisy to say, well, you know, if Jesus is casting out demons, it must be because he's evil. Jesus says, well, what about you guys? You do the same thing. Are you evil? They will be your judges. Jesus is in a battle. His power is from God, and his aim is to set the captives free. And we're in the same battle. We experience the same war and battle, a war for our hearts and the hearts of men and women everywhere. Jesus is at war. Thankfully, Jesus is stronger, is my second point. Jesus is stronger. In grade three, I changed schools, and I went to a school that was actually closer to our house. And um, for whatever reason, I... We were on a wait list, and we got in finally. And so that school, I could ride my bike to and from, and I could, you know, get there on my own. It wasn't very far from my house. And so um, in grade three, I remember there's a grade five kid who had it out for me. And so any chance he got, he'd give me like a punch in the ribs, or he was like pushing me or whatever, and just really unkind. And my dad was all, kept trying to like, Jonathan, you got you to gotta defend yourself. You know, you got to self-defense. Now, remember, I'm not a fighter, right? I'm like, oh, I'll just hug everybody. It'll be okay. And my dad's like, you know what? It's not going to work. It's not, it's not working here. And so I'd come home and I'd be crying or whatever. And I remember one particular day, I stayed too long at the playground. And so lots of people were gone, you know, and it's still playing. I'm like, okay, I'm going to go home. And I went to get my bike at the bike rack. And this guy came with a couple friends. They were still there at the school ground. And so there's no one really else around. And they kind of surrounded me. And I remembered my dad had been like, you know, you got to like, stand up for you. And I was like, but there's three of them. Like how, I don't know which way to face, you know? And then they start pushing me and then I turn and then the other one pushed me. I, and it was like a movie. And I'm in this circle of guys and they're pushing me. And I remember just the feeling of fear. Like, I don't know what's going to happen. And then suddenly this grade seven kid runs up from nowhere and he runs into the circle and he pushes them out of the way. And he's like, get out of here, you guys, stop it. If I see you touch him again, I'm coming for you. And they scattered. And they run off. And then he walked me and my bike out to, the, out to the corner where I could ride home. And he was like, are you okay? Are you going to be okay? I'm like, yeah. You know what? A bully seems so big and strong until someone who's stronger comes along. And then suddenly, when you have a grade 7, a grade 5 doesn't seem very big anymore. That's the truth. Why do the demons obey Jesus? Jesus answers the question. He answers it with this simple illustration. He says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. That's the bully. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. They obey because Jesus is stronger. That's Jesus' answer. He says, why? Because I'm stronger. That's why. There's the, the action movie storyline. You might like action movies or not. I'm not advocating for that in any way, shape, or form. But the action movie or the action story plot line is this, that there's a villain, and usually there's a villain henchman who's working with the villain, and he's like a really mean character. Either he's like super big, like a giant, or he's like a super martial arts guy, and he's like super awesome at fighting. 
and you've got this duo, you know, or the, you know, the villain is mastermind. So maybe he doesn't fight or he does, but like he's evil. And then he's got this evil henchman. And you've got these people and they're going around and they're mistreating everyone. And the action plot is that a hero comes along who stands up for the other people and defeats the evil villain and his henchmen. And the reason why is because he might not be as tall as that evil henchman or as good at martial arts as that evil henchman, but he's stronger and he's better and he's more dedicated to and he's willing to go all the way to defeat evil. Luke chapter 4, verse 41, this is what happens. Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting. This is what the demons shouted when they came out of people. You are the son of God. And he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah, the Savior. As they're being cast out, oh, you're Jesus, you're the son of God. Jesus would say, stop it, stop talking. Colossians 1, 15 to 17 says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. In him all things were created. It, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's an amazing statement about who Jesus is. There's a story in the Old Testament that I love that um, anytime I'm tempted to be afraid about things I don't know or, you know, curses or this thing or that thing or evil power, I think about the story of Balaam. And it's the story that people of Israel are coming out of Egypt, and so they've left slavery, and they're going to the promised land. But in order for them to get to the promised land, there's like a million of them with women and children. They're traveling, this huge group of people, they're traveling, and they've got to go through some other countries to get to the promised land. And so the first country they get to, they, they send their envoys, and they say, hi, we'd, we'd really love to just pass through on the road. We'll stick to the road. We won't go off the road. And as we go through whatever food we eat, we will buy from you. We have money. See our money. And we'll buy the food, and we won't bother you. Can we pass through your country? And the countries would say, no way. You giant horde of people, you're going to take over. No way, no way. And so the people of Israel are like, okay, well, I guess we're going to have to go around or something. So they start going around, and the Amorites attack them anyway. They're like, we can't let these guys go around. So they attack them, and the Israelites defeat them. And now the other nations watching are afraid. And so the next nation over is the nation of Moab. And Moab's like, oh my goodness, they just beat the Amorites. What are we going to do? We can't beat them. They're so huge. There's so many of them. I know, let's curse them. And so they go to Balaam and they say, Balaam, you're a spiritual guy and you do the cursing and the blessing. So we'd like you to go and curse the people of Israel. And Balaam goes and he prays and he says, God, should I curse them? And God says, no, you're not allowed to curse them. Those are my chosen people. I won't let you. And Balaam's like, okay. So he goes and he says, sorry, I can't do it. I can't curse them. And then the guy's like, look at this cartload of money. Don't you want to curse them now? Look at all this money. Come on, come on. And Balaam's like, well, that's a lot of money. Okay, well, let me go check again. No, no, okay. He gets no. And come on, look at all the money. Just maybe just go look at them. Come on, come on, you can do it. And Balaam's like, okay, let's go. I'll just go over there and look. I won't say anything. I'll just look. And so they get Balaam over there. And if you know the story, on the way, the angel of the Lord is going to kill Balaam. And he gets a warning, and he's like, uh, okay. And he's warned, you know, be careful. He gets out to the people, and he's like, I can't, I can't curse these people. This is God's chosen people. 
And Balak's like, come on, just do it. Look at all the money. Just, just say, you know, say it. Just say the curse. Curse them. And as Balaam's like, okay, and he starts to speak, he says a blessing. The blessing is like, these people are going to win. They're going to win everything. They're so awesome. God's with them. You can't beat them. And Balak's like, what? What did you just say? I can't believe this. I'm paying you for this? No, you need to curse them. And he tries again, and again, blessing comes out. And then a third time, he's like, just do it one more time. Come on, I need a curse. I need a real curse to beat these guys. Again, blessing. This is the story. This is the picture. Do do we live in fear? Do these people traveling live in fear about what the enemy's going to do? No, they are under God's covering and protection. A curse can't even be spoken against them. It turns into a blessing. This is a beautiful picture. God is stronger. Jesus is stronger. It's no contest. Neither Satan nor his demons are a rival or an equal to God. There's a kid's story that I love. It's called, uh, Is the Blue Whale the Biggest Thing There Is? Anyone read it? Oh, yeah. Come, Okay, Tegan, like he doesn't even have kids yet. Awesome. It's his favorite book. He's got it on his shelf. Is the blue whale the biggest thing there is? It's a kid's book with pictures. It's an awesome book. Anyway, the, it's, it talks about, you know, is the blue whale the biggest thing there is? And so they show all picture of all the animals, and they show a picture of the blue whale. You know, a blue whale's tail, his fluke, is bigger than all the other animals. His tail. You see the picture of the elephant and the giraffe and whatever other animals we could have on earth that would compare. It's, they fit in the tail of the blue whale massive creature. And then the author says, if you had 20 jars of blue whales stuffed in those jars, 20 jars would fit into Mount Everest. 20 jars of blue whales into Mount Everest. Is Mount Everest the biggest thing there is? And then, well, if you had 100 Mount Everest piled on top of each other and you zoomed out from the earth, do you know what it would look like? A whisker. Like, a wi- like earth has a whisker. That's what a hundred Mount Everest would look like. Is the earth, is that the biggest thing there's? Okay, well, the earth, let's put it next to the sun. Man, you've got a hundred earths in a bag? Looks tiny. Do you know how many earths fit in the sun? A million. A million earths in the sun. Hey, the sun, the sun, that's the biggest thing there is, isn't it? No. Take the sun, make it the size of an orange, put it in a box of other oranges that are suns, and put that box on top of Antares, a red giant star. It looks like a tiny little box. Do you know how many suns fit in Antares? 15 million. 15 million. So let that range help you understand what we're talking about. Satan would be the blue whale, big and scary to us. Compared to Antares, there's no rivalry. There's no, what? What? 15 million suns, 1 million earths, 100 Everests. Down, 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 down. This is what we're talking about. Romans 16, 20 says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. 1 Corinthians 15, 57 says, Thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The song, uh, what a beautiful name it is, says the line is, You have no rival 
You have no equal. We sing that to God. It's true. There's no rival. There's no equal to God. Revelation 20 tells the end of the story. In case you're wondering, how does this work out? Is this like an a, a even match? How's this going to go? Is the, is the outcome in question in this battle or this war between God and the enemy? Revelation 20 says this. Satan and all his army, like the sand on the seashore, they surround God's people. Now remember, Revelation is, there's, it's a vision. There's lots of symbolic stuff, lots of parts to it. So this is, but this is the picture. Like the Lord of the Rings at the end. Sand on the seashore, the enemies of God surround the people of God. Oh no, what's going to happen? They're all surrounded. The enemy looks like he's going to win. What happens? Is there a battle? No, there's not even a battle. At that point, done. It's like, well, that's a bit anticlimactic. That's what it says. That's the end. Done. Enemy, lake of fire, gone. So we're not fighting? No. It's not it. There's not a match. Jesus is the one who is stronger, who has overcome the strong man. Jesus disarms the enemy, taking his armor and his spoils. Armor speaks of like his ability to raid, his ability to trust that he can go in and do with impunity. Jesus has taken that. What are the spoils of the enemy? We are. We're the spoils of the enemy. Jesus has come and he's conquered sin and death to reconcile us to God. My C2C uh, coach likes to say, Jesus wants what he paid for, which is us. Jesus is after what he paid for. He bought us, and he's, that's the spoils he's after, that he's won. Jesus is stronger, so we don't have to live in fear anymore. Psalm 27 says this, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advanced against me and devour, to, to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. Jesus is stronger. And Jesus fills the house. Jesus fills the house. Dwight Moody, who was a famous preacher back in the day, he used to use this analogy. And he'd get a a glass tumbler and he'd say, how can I get the air out of this glass tumbler? And people would say, I don't know, you can do this. And he'd be like, no, that's not going to work. Okay, what about that? How do I get the air out? And someone would say, you could vacuum seal it, you know, and suck it on. And he'd say, well, that's going to shatter the jar. It's not going to work. We can't, but it's not going to, that's not going to work. What, what else? What else? People would suggest ideas. And then finally he'd say, okay, how about this? And then he'd take a pitcher of water and he'd pour the water into the jar. And he'd be like, there's no more air in the jar. Now it's water. And the picture is that the air is displaced by something greater, by something with a greater a, a mass or a volume or whatever pushes the air out. The air can't stay when the water's there. We don't get rid of sin or the devil by trying something, by trying harder. We get rid of him by being filled with the Spirit of God. That's what happens. And Jesus tells this scary story. I don't know if you're scared when you read it. It's a bit of a scary story. I read him like, whoa, this is a... But scary, like there's a house and there's a demon leaves and then the house is all clean and the demon goes away and gets other demons and they come back and now it's worse for the person. Like, what's the deal with this story? What does this mean? What is Jesus saying? And I think it's scary if we don't know what it means. 
Is Jesus teaching about dem- demonic possession? Is he trying to scare people? Wouldn't it be better not to be set free in that case than with uh, it's being worse? Jesus says that person is worse than the first. What does that mean? This is not a story to scare Christians. It's not a story to scare Christians. A Christian is a house that has been filled with the Spirit of God. So it can't be empty. That is the definition of a Christian. We've been filled with the Spirit of God. God comes and lives in us. So by that definition, we're not an empty house. We're a house filled with the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? Romans 8.11 says, If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. This is the picture of being a Christian, is the Spirit of God lives in us. So we're not afraid of, upon conversion, that we dislodge the enemy and that he's going to come back with seven more and, oh no, we don't live with that fear because we are filled with the Spirit of God. This is definitely, though, a warning to religious leaders who are trying to clean house without Jesus. People trying to clean house without Jesus, that gets scary. And Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now, this is kind of funny because he said the opposite thing just a few chapters ago. Did anyone, does anyone remember that? Jesus said exactly the opposite thing. He says in Luke chapter 9, Master said, John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Do not stop him, says Jesus, for whoever is not against you is for you. What? Do not stop him, for whoever is not against you is for you. Who's not against you is for you? But you just said whoever's not with me is against me. So is that in conflict? You know, it'd be harder to make sense of it if it were Matthew saying the one and Luke saying the other. We'd have to be like, okay, like we've got to really think this out. It's not. Luke said both of them. Luke wrote both these things down, and he's a master for detail. So if Luke wrote both these things down, he must not think those are in conflict, those two statements. That Jesus said them. In the one, the guy is exercising demons in the name of Jesus. And Jesus says, well, if he's not against us, he's for us. He's doing this in the name of Jesus. And in the other case, they're accusing Jesus of working with the demons. And Jesus says, if you're not with me, you're against me. Even as they accused Jesus of collusion with the devil, Jesus is giving them a warning. And the warning is that the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. He says, your sons will judge you, the ones that you are going to do this work. Your hypocrisy will be revealed. Jesus wasn't just cleaning the house. He was bringing spirit transformation. He's not just tidying. He's bringing transformation. I love cleaning. It's a true confession. I love cleaning. I love going into a space that's dirty or disorganized and putting it in order, cleaning it. So because of that weird thing that it's built into me, I enjoy cleaning the dirtiest bathrooms possible. Because a bathroom to me is like, it gets really dirty. And then that's the place where like, you really see it get clean. And so I love it. I think, actually, I consider myself an awesome cleaner. 
But you know what the truth is? These are not, this is not something we clean. This is not, we're not radically transformed because we're good cleaners. You're not radically transformed because you're a good cleaner. You are radically transformed because the spirit of God comes and lives in you and changes you. That's what changes you. We aren't beating sin by fighting it harder. We, aren't beating, we are beating sin by loving God with all of our hearts. A heart that is truly undivided, really, truly, like I don't know if we ever get there where we're fully undivided, but that would be the place where there's no, not much room for sin anymore. It's, just, it's right there. We're, we're focused on God. God has all of us. Maybe that's the he- moment of heaven. And a heart that's fully surrendered is the work of this, to the work of the Spirit doesn't have locked doors and secret rooms. When we're really surrendered, all of it gets opened. All of it gets brought out, and the Holy Spirit does a work. A heart that's affections are set more and more on Christ are set less and less in the world. Or on sin or the things, you know, the enemy would sell us as a counterfeit bill of goods. We live indwelt and compelled by the Spirit of God. That's the picture. So my big idea is that although we experience spiritual opposition, Jesus is one because he's stronger, or you could just say, Jesus is stronger. Jesus is stronger. There is opposition. Jesus battled a real spiritual enemy whose mission is to steal, kill, and destroy. And we're still in that battle for the hearts and lives of men and women. But Jesus is stronger. Jesus went to the cross and decisively issued a blow to sin and to death and to the enemy. Jesus is stronger. By comparison with the enemy, Jesus is in Taurus. God is in Taurus. And the enemy is a blue whale. Jesus fills the house When he comes, when we invite him in, he comes and he brings his life, his spirit to do the deep clean. It's not because we're good at cleaning, it's because he is. And we're transformed by his life in us. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for the whole counsel of scripture. That um, as we preach through books of the Bible, we come to passages that... um, Maybe I'd rather skip over because they're awkward or they might be sensitive to people or make us uncomfortable. But Lord, I thank you that um, these passages have a message that our hearts need to hear. Lord, we live in fear so much of the time, in anxiety, in worry. We're afraid of the world. We're afraid of the devil. We're afraid of uh, all sorts of things. And Jesus, the message that you are stronger, that you have conquered, that you're the winner, should fill our hearts with gladness and gratitude. And Jesus, the the truth that you come and you don't just clean our house and send us off. You come and you fill our house with your presence. Opening every door, going in every room, cleaning out the closets, bringing real life transformation. And God, we, we thank you that this is your heart, this is who you are, and this is what you do. Thank you for your power, for your victory, for your glory, for the cross, for the resurrection. This morning, Lord, we proclaim you, our King. Amen.